0: And so, if you have a Bible, please open it up to Exodus, chapter 35. By its own proclamation, the Bible is more than a book but it's always worth remembering that it is literature. And what that means is that there is um, intentionality that the authors of Scripture express through literary means. Now, I mean, some of that's relatively obvious, like, for example, when you look through the pages of the Bible, just thumb through it sometime and look at the different types of writings we have. We have historical narratives like we're moving through now. We have large sections of legal code. We have psalms and we have proverbs. Uh, The proverbs fall into a larger category that's almost been entirely lost in the modern world known as wisdom literature. Um, We have uh, the prophets, which are also unique. We have apocalyptic literature. We have epistolatory literature or letters. Um, And each of those play by their own rules and do their own things. And when we look at uh, historical narratives like the book of Exodus, one of the things that authors often do to express importance in literature is structural. And kind of like the structure behind the drywall in your house, it might give general shape to your house, but you probably don't think about it very much. And so sometimes it's worth drawing your attention to the studs every two feet so you can feel the framing of the house and understand, and tonight that's especially important. Um, it, the necessity of doing this is added to by the fact that we pick up and leave off. It's worth remembering that for the most part, uh, the books of the Bible, Old Testament and New, are designed to be read as a whole. In fact, many of them are expected to be read in a single sitting which I know is not a common way for us to read scripture. In fact, for some of us, our usual approach to scripture is more like a wholly sanctified Ouija board. And so we just point and hope that God speaks to us, right? But the Bible is literature and God has chosen to reveal himself literarily. And so we are picking up where we left off uh, and I want to draw attention to what's happening in the beams and framing of the book right now. Um, because the author is trying to say something that would be easy for us to miss, okay? I want you to notice where chapter 35 picks up. Verse one, "'Moses assembled all the congregation "'of the people of Israel and said to them, "'These are the things that the Lord "'has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, "'but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath "'of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. "'Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death.'" You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Now, we could talk about this passage from a lot of different angles, but because this has been a repeated refrain of the book of Exodus, I want to leave aside the Sabbath laws for a second and just point out what this passage, these three verses, is doing here. You see, what we're about to read over the course of the rest of the night, for the most part, is familiar territory. We, just two weeks ago, walked through the entire plans for the building of the tabernacle and for the clothing of the priests that were given to Moses by God, and now we're going to watch line by line, instruction by instruction, as they build it. It's almost entirely repeated, word for word, and I'll highlight this as we go along. And so on top of the fact that the author feels the need to tell this story twice, the only thing that changes is the tense. You will build, and so they built, okay? On, on top of the fact that he uh, spends so much time, a total of 10 chapters talking about these things, going through it not but once, but twice, it also encapsulates something. One of the most... Uh, underutilized literary techniques that was common in the ancient world and is hardly ever used in the modern world is the inclusio. Okay, An inclusion is when you wrap your story in a beginning and an ending that start and stop in the same place. And the Bible is full of places like this, sometimes in a repeated sentence, and so a story opens with a sentence and then closes with the same one. Sometimes... It's larger than that, and that's how it is here. And so here's the structure that I want you to imagine. Um, All the way back in chapter uh, 25, we have this whole thing laid out of the building of the tabernacle, the whole plans. plans. That goes all the way to 28. Um, And then we have the the priest being prepared, and then starting in... um, Starting in... 32, we have this incident, right, with the golden calf. So the story is put on pause. There's this meanwhile back at the ranch scenario of while Moses has been on the mountain, here's what Israel's doing. It throws every, everything sideways. Moses intercedes for the people. God graciously restores the covenant. And then we pick up again where we are in chapter 35. Notice, though, Notice that chapter 35 begins with the Sabbath in the same way that chapter 31 ends with the Sabbath, okay? If you were just reading and you just deleted chapters 32, 33, and 34, you probably wouldn't notice they were missing. You'd just be struck by the repetition. You would, you would be reading, and you'd finish 32 on the Sabbath, and then you'd open up to 35, and it'd be the Sabbath again, and you're like, yeah, you just said that, Okay? It's kind of like Moses here is almost, in writing the story of the Exodus, going, now, as I was saying before I was so rudely interrupted, okay? Now, we'll see, even in the structure that we look at for the rest of the night, the organization is different. But he puts the Sabbath first to close off this happening in 32 through 34. And uh, what we have before the golden calf is the design for the tabernacle, what we have after the golden calf is the building of the tabernacle, okay? And so um, this is an overstatement, but I think the illustration is just. It's almost like God seals, seals off, uh, like we would with uh, nuclear waste, seals off on both sides, closes off this incident, and wraps around it his will and his plan for the tabernacle. Now, we'll talk more about why this material is so repeated word for word, but before we do that, uh, it's, it's worth uh, touching on the rest here of chapter 35. Let's look at verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold gold silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and stones for settings for the ephod and for the breastplate. Now, you may remember that this is exactly what God had told Moses to do earlier, was to take up a freewill offering from the people for all of the, um, all of the materials it would take to build the tabernacle. But it doesn't just finish here and say, so he put out an offering and the people gave. It does a whole lot more than that. Let's keep reading. Verse 10, Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, The tabernacle, its tent and its coverings, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars, its bases, the ark with the poles, the mercy seat, the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils, the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps, and the oil for the light. The altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, the screen for the door and the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils and the basins and its stands. Verse 17 the hangings of the court, its pillars and bases, the screens of the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court, and their cords, and the finely worked garments for the ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his son for service as priests. Now, you you may not remember all the significance of those things, but we're going to walk through them two more times tonight. So we're just going to leave that lie. But I want you to notice what happens next. So what does Moses say? He says... God has commanded us to take up a free will offering for the materials. Here's the materials we need, and then here's the things the materials will be building. But notice here, verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came... Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and all sorts of gold, objects, uh, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tan Ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood and any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And the women whose hearts stirred them used their skill to spin goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplates and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women of the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. Now, at first glance, it'd be easy just to see that as another layer of repetition Moses says, here's what we need. And then we see the people bringing it. But did you catch the repeated additional phrases? I've underlined them, so I'll just walk through them. Listen to what it says. Everyone whose heart stirred him. Everyone whose spirit moved him. uh, Anyone with a willing heart. Everyone who could. Those whose hearts stirred them. Those whose hearts moved them. And then finally it sums it up as a free will offering. Do you hear an emphasis in that? Okay, the first thing is to recognize that Moses doesn't come and say, okay, here is the amount we're going to raise, thermometer on the wall, this is what's needed and necessary, and we're going to stay here until we get it. In fact, the first thing that people do is that they they go home, right? He just says, this is what we're going to do, and then they go to their place, and over the course of the following days, we'll see in the next passage, they start to, from their own heart's desire, bring things for the building of the tabernacle. Um, In fact, as we're going to see in just a minute, they continue to bring until Moses says, that's enough, stop, we have plenty. So why does it reiterate this over and over again um, that, uh, that it was from a stirred heart, from a moved heart, from a free will offering, Uh, those whose hearts were stirred. I love how it even adds in verse 24, everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze. Okay, it recognizes that not everybody has silver or bronze to give. What is the emphasis here? It's two things. There's a Godward side and there's an Israel side. Remember first and foremost that this is exactly as God designed it. That Moses didn't come up with a plan that left it in the hands of the people for how they wanted to give and how much they wanted to give. But instead, that was by design. It was supposed to be a willing contribution. Not a tax, not an exaction, not even a tithe, although the law will lay out a principle of tithing later on. This was to be freely given as anyone would desire. It wasn't even everyone must give as much as they would like. It was anyone who would like to give can give what they like. Okay. And so the first thing we need to understand here is despite the fact that the tabernacle is essential to God's plan for Israel, he's not interested in taking their money. It would be inappropriate to look at this and say, okay, God needs Israel to pitch in. He's got a great plan. He's got a great strategy, and he needs Israel just to participate so that he can do it. Okay? He's not looking for investors, in the tabernacle. That's not what this is. In fact, let's be honest and recognize that the Bible is full of miraculous stories where God provides for people miraculously. Could he not provide for the tabernacle in the same way? Of course. There's a principle built into this. The recognition is, even though God doesn't need our money, he does desire us to give. Right? I I don't think any of us, when we look at at the bottom reality of Uh, our offerings we bring to the Lord or our our abilities we offer in his service or the time that we present to him. I don't think any of us picture God as starving or understaffed uh, or, you know, barely breaking even and in need of a hand. I'm just going to assume that's not the case. I know you can turn on your TV and hear people tell you that. But I think we know better. So why then? Why does God want us to give? What this really is, is an invitation to participate in what God is doing, and not just at that base level so that you can be involved, but also because God is crafting a generous people. I heard John Piper say once that God doesn't want us just to make good decisions. He wants to create good decision makers. And that struck me as being a little bit profound That instead of God just giving us the book and saying, here's all of the right decisions for your life, he cultivates a process that requires dependence, where we grow in our ability to discern God's word. Why doesn't he just lay it out in front? Because the real work that God is doing is us. And he does that work through things like this. He's not just creating a tabernacle so he can dwell with his people. He's creating a people that he's going to dwell with. And so he invites them into this, and he works in their heart towards generosity. But there's also an Israel side here, which I think is really striking. A good deal of these materials are jewelry. Did you notice that? It says those who had bracelets or earrings. Now that should ring a bell for us. Because at this point, these pieces of jewelry are leftovers. They're remainders from what happened just a few chapters ago when Israel gave their jewelry to Aaron to make a golden calf for them. Okay? And what we've seen is God tremendously works through Moses as a mediator and in the hearts of the people to restore the covenant. Okay? We are not in plan B territory. That's another thing we learn by the tabernacle being built just as it's designed. Right? Everything God intended is still going to go about. Everything's been set straight again. But one of the things we see in the heart of Israel here is that they desire the tabernacle. No more settling for a golden calf. No more just wanting God to get them to the promised land. They're fully invested in this plan to be a people who God dwells with. And we see that in them just giving so willingly and so freely. This offering is a direct reflection of their desire to know the Lord, right? In fact, this is painted in such an overabundant way, their effort of idolatry, which is relatively fancy. I mean, they build this golden calf. That's nothing to mock. That's a lot of money, You know, that's an investment that they've made in their idolatry, but it is clearly overshadowed by this, is it not? In fact, I think there's there's a principle that's important here. Sometimes, if you understand the biblical of idolatry, and let me unpack it for you very simply, it's that there's there's a bunch of things that are God created, most of them good things, but we make them ultimate and we look to them for our ultimate fulfillment for our ultimate security, for our ultimate sense of satisfaction and meaning. And when we recognize that those things aren't God, that those things aren't satisfying, when God freely offers and says, no, turn from those things and come to the God who is life, a lot of us fall short of part of the reality. What we think is, okay, we've just got to stop these things. We see salvation or repentance we see even um, fleeing from idolatry, idolatry in primarily negative terms. And all I want you to recognize here is that they don't go from being, um, you know, uh, wow, my wife has gotten to me to the degree I only know words like frugal and I can't think of the opposite of that. Whatever that is, lavish, okay? It's not just I no longer lavish myself on the wrong things right? Now I've become a frugal person. Now I have boundaries and borders, and I don't do stuff like that. No, they do lavishly more, but it's rightly oriented to the God who is there. All I'm saying is, have you ever reflected, if you're a Christian this evening, have you ever reflected on how wholeheartedly you threw yourself into these idols you now know that were empty? Have you ever reflected on how much time and effort and energy you expended on these things that never satisfied. Now you have found the God who is there. Now you know the God who is truly good and truly sovereign and you are fully and completely designed to find your satisfaction in. Shouldn't your worship just completely trump the old you? Shouldn't it be more and not less? That's what we see in Israel. And I hope you don't catch that as a guilt trip tonight, because if it's not freely offered, it's not worship. These are not begrudging givers who go, okay, so that God won't damn me to hell, I'm going to pay my dues. We could never read that passage, this passage that way, freely and willingly and overabundantly. Over Where does that come from? It comes from recognizing exactly what it is that God is freely offering. This is why, this is why Paul in the book of Ephesus lays out every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And it's not until he walks through all of those things that he says, therefore walk worthy in a man, or in a worthy manner in the calling in which you were called. Because you have such a great calling, shouldn't you walk worthy That's why in the book of Romans, after laying out all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, he says, I beg you therefore, brethren, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable response. He says, if this is the God of the Bible, if this is the God, the God who stands behind Jesus Christ, and while we were enemies, sent Christ to die for us, why wouldn't you offer yourself freely and fully? Israel gets that message, and we see it reflected here. Before we move on, I just want to reiterate one more time that God isn't looking for you to give grudgingly. Now, there are are times, and I'll be honest, I'll be frank, there are times where obedience is painful. And there are times where giving involves a direct act of faith where you go, okay, I believe that you should take my first fruits, but I already am looking at the stores and I can't imagine I have enough and you give. I'm not saying that there aren't times where you should give, but that should always be a willing act of joy. The Bible says that God will be in no man's debt. And we've gotta recognize that however we live our life, whatever we offer offer to God in our time, in the things that we have, in our abilities, whatever vow we make that God, I'm going to do this for you, it's never us who ish- initiate. It's never, I'll do these things and then God will do. No, God has done and therefore you respond and you got to watch yourself in these things. Entitlement isn't an appropriate attitude in worship. But Israel's not entitled. They recognize now that even this great plan God had, they threw it in the trash as soon as he had it arranged and he freely offered it to to them again. They understand grace and they enter into it fully. And so we pick up in verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name... Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for settings, and in carving wood, and for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach, both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahishamak, Of the tribe of Dan, he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by a weaver or any sort of workman or skilled designer. And so these two men, God has uniquely crafted to be Renaissance men, right? They're masters of every craft and everything that's needed. And they're going to, they're going to run the show. Not only are they going to lead other craftsmen, but they're going to train other craftsmen. But what I wanted to point out tonight, because we've already been introduced to them, we knew this was coming. Who does Moses tell? Does he just tell Bezalel and Aholibah? That's not right. His name is so difficult. Aholiab, there we go. Uh, Does he just say, hey, God has called you this? No, he says to the entire congregation of Israel, God has called these two to this. Why? Listen, something that I've observed uh, is that we oftentimes think of our calling in relatively private terms. We explore it in private terms. God, what is it that you have for me? We think of it in private terms. Uh, we, we are so uh, autonomistic in our modern society, calling is something individual. It's something private. It's between me and the Lord. Even if it affects other people, we just start from that place. But I want you to recognize here that Moses feels the need to speak this to the entire congregation. Why? Because they need to affirm and receive the calling of these two men. You see, when we get to the New Testament, the Bible begins to talk about a practice called the laying on of hands. So, for example, Paul reminds a young pastor in training by the name of Timothy, he says, remember the prophecy that you receive during the laying on of hands. And because Timothy's role in the city of Ephesus is to appoint elders, he says, don't be swift in the laying on of hands on anyone. Don't be quick to bring them into the ministry. Okay? And the laying on of hands is not some sort of magical impartation of the power of the pastor. It's just identification. It's a recognition that we are laying our hands on you and recognizing you for what you were called to. Okay? And the reason why I bring this up is because calling in our life is something that God and only God does. It, there are some churches that will talk about callings in the sense of hirings. And so I've accepted a call to this particular church. Now, they're probably just trying to maintain a broader reality that if you're coming to pastor in a particular place, hopefully God is calling you. But it's important that we recognize that God calls and we confirm the calling, okay? That our laying on hands is not calling someone into the ministry, but recognizing that calling. And when Moses does this with the congregation of Israel, that's what he's asking them to do, to recognize, to receive, and to support them in this calling. I will tell you from personal experience that the things that I now feel fully convinced that God has asked of me and designed me for that I would have not gone after if it hadn't been for the people in my life who confirmed and affirmed and encouraged me in those callings. Even though this, what I'm doing right now, is at the deepest level of my heart built into the desires that God has given me. Even though a decade ago, 15 years ago, I found longings to do just this, I just assumed it wasn't for me. And so there's a need to recognize, both to receive and to affirm, the calling in other people's lives. And we see that in Moses here. He continues in chapter 36. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord had put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in in whom's mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do his work. Now there's a third component there that's worth mentioning and calling. Did you catch it? Everyone whose heart stirred them. And so God calls, the people affirm, but there's also an internal witness that comes with calling. This is why when Paul is addressing the standards for who can be a pastor in the church in 1 Timothy 3, he begins this way. He says, if anyone desires the role of pastor, he desires a good thing. It begins with desire. And here we see as well that there's an internal thing. And this is another thing to watch out for, okay? As much as sometimes we limit what God is doing in our life because of fear or because, like, like me, because I just couldn't foresee that being what the Lord had for me, there was still this internal witness. But you have to watch out for people just thrusting you into things that God isn't calling you to. And let me make a clarification just because it feels like it's needed. Remember that these men are craftsmen. They're artisans. Their calling here is to build stuff, okay? And so calling, in the way that I'm talking about, doesn't just apply to capital M ministry, to missionaries and pastors, okay? The Bible makes relatively clear that God has equipped you to serve him, and that capacity may happen in your job, that may happen overseas. It may happen in your home as you raise your children. Calling and vocation is a relatively broad category. But it always involves three three parts, okay? It needs to come from the Lord. It needs to resonate inside you, and it needs to be confirmed by a group of believers that you respect. And so, so as their heart uh, Anyone whose heart stirred him to come to do the work, verse 3, and they received from Moses all the contribution that people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough to do the work of the Lord has commanded us to do. Now, that's a summary statement, but do you see what's happening? The bronze guy is coming and saying, hey, I've got too much bronze, Next, the silver guy comes and says, we have plenty of silver. And then the goatskin guy comes and he says, we are totally set on goatskin, okay? And so in every category, they are sufficient. And so notice here uh, what Moses does, verse six. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. Now, I think that's an incredibly striking statement. Because remember, we're dealing with valuables here. He doesn't think, we'll probably need gold later. We should store up for a rainy day, right? There's there's no thinking, well, we have so much in excess here, I guess I'll make myself a really nice, you know, purple and blue yarn suit. Right? What we see here is that there was one intention, the intention was fulfilled, end of offering. Notice what it says in the end. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Even that word shows once again that the hearts of Israel are bursting to do more. But they restrain them and say, no, that's enough, we're stopping there. Verse eight. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. Okay, so starting with verse 8, now we get to walk through everything we've already seen. The curtains of the tabernacle, the veil in the holy place and in the most holy place, all of the furniture that makes up the tabernacle, the priestly garments, it's going to walk through all of them word for word. From here, chapter 36, verse 8, all the way through chapter 39, verse 43, that's all there is. Okay. So think about that. Think about it in a couple of different ways. Let's start with this one. The Bible takes a single chapter to describe the entire creation of the world. It takes only 11 chapters to talk about at least 2,000 years of ancient history, what we could call universal history, right? Leading up to the Tower of Babylon, the, the splitting into nations where there's now national history just 11 chapters. Almost as many chapters it devotes not to the passing of time, but to the plans for a single temporary tent. And then not only that, but it does it more than once. It's written on the front of the page, and then the page just flips it over, and it goes, just in case you forgot, let me remind you, and it walks you through it again. Why? Well, first off, you need to recognize that repetition is a common feature of the Bible. And there's a couple of practical reasons why that's the case. Okay, the first one is that in all cases, repetition is an appropriate and helpful teaching tool. Okay? To the degree that I still know the address for Scruff McGruff. And stick stickly, if you guys ever watched Nick Jr. as a kid. Because the song on the commercials was catchy, and I heard it many, many, many times, right? And the truth is, we need to be reminded, and so the Bible takes time to repeat things. That's all the more true when you remember that although the Bible comes from a people of the book, it also comes from a people who were relatively illiterate, right? And so most people's encounter with the scriptures, Old Testament and New, was through the Bible being read aloud. Now let me just point out something that you do all the time when you read something you don't understand. You stop, you go back, and you read again. When, when you're listening to me though, you can't push pause, not yet. I'm sure Facebook is working on it, right? You can't rewind and go back. If you miss it, it's gone, okay? Repetition allows you a second chance to catch what you missed the first time around. But there's another thing that repetition clearly does, and that's emphasis. there's quite a few different examples of this I'll give you a couple of illustrations consider this in the book of Acts there's an occasion where Peter has a vision of this you know uh, this tablecloth being let down from heaven covered in all sorts of animals and after he understands the vision there's a knock on the door and the vision was clearly about that meeting and he goes and he preaches in a house he usually as a Jew a self-respecting Jew wouldn't be caught dead in the house of a Gentile and they get saved and then he basically gets taken to church court over this in the next chapter. They're like, we heard that you were hanging out in the house of a Gentile centurion. What is going on, Peter? You're supposed to be an example, etc., etc." And he tells the story again. Now that's not surprising in historical sense, but I want you to remember that Luke, our author, records it in total, word for word, twice, back to back, chapter 10, chapter 11. We just read it. Why does he tell us again? It's clearly more than because it was told in history twice, so I might as well tell it again, right? He could have just said, so Peter told him what happened yesterday. And he doesn't. He walks through the whole thing again. Remember this as well. Scholars tell us that Luke is almost the exact size of what we would call a full scroll. Okay, Luke wasn't writing in a book with pages. In the ancient world, that was called a codex, and they just start to show up around the time of the New Testament, he would have written on a scroll. He would have written on that scroll front to back, and that meant whenever you transported the Gospel of Luke, you would have had to roll it up and tuck it under your arm and take it with you. The longer the book, the harder it is to do. Kind of like if you've ever tried to read The Count of Monte Cristo, and it's hard to hold, right? You almost want a multi-volume edition, let alone War and Peace or some of these larger books. Okay, So, Most scholars believe that Luke and Acts is actually one book, but it's broke into two parts because that would have filled two scrolls, okay? Now, if that is accurate, Luke still feels the need to tell that story twice, knowing he has limited paper space, okay? In fact, that's not the only repetition in the book of Acts. Consider this. Paul's testimony, the story of how he becomes a Christian, happens once in the narrative And then two more times in his telling of that narrative before Kings. Two times. Twice, you read the story again as he tells someone else. Why? Emphasis. Luke says, I really want to make sure you got this. Consider the Gospels, four different dimensions to the story. Four different authors feel the need to tell the same story, and almost half of every gospel is devoted to the same seven days of the story, and more than half of those seven days are devoted to the same six hours as Jesus dies on the cross. Repetition, okay? Now, there's something we can pick up in this repetition that also points to it, Chapter 35 through 40 gives us very little in terms of new material. Even the offering that we saw was already expected. So he expands upon it, but it's not really new. It will only be the last five verses of chapter 40 that we can really call new. But you know what we find in these six chapters? We find the phrase, as the Lord commanded, 26 times. Just... Just for reference, that's almost as many times in the first 34 chapters of the book of Exodus. It's just too shy of as many times as it's been said so far in the book of Exodus, okay? And so what is the emphasis that Moses wants us to get in this? That, that it's obedience. What we see is that every piece, every garment, every dimension, every aspect was done just as the Lord did commanded okay and so as we read through this I want to wa- I want you to watch out for that but remember if you've been traveling through this book with us everything we're about to read we've already been through once I'm going to help us rebuild our little mental model of the tabernacle again I'll point out a few things but for the most part I just want to read through it so verse 8 All the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain was four cubits and the curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains to one another and five curtains he coupled to another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, he made them on the edge of the outermost curtain on the second set. He made 50 loops on one curtain, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite one another, and he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains to one another with clasps so that the tabernacle was a single hole. So the first thing we see here is that he builds all the materials that take up the holy place and the most holy place, this center tent that is five layers of fabric thick on every edge, that is beautiful garments on the inside and practical garments on the outside, okay? And so, uh, in fact, notice what it says in verse 14. He'd also made curtains of goat hair for a tent over the tabernacle. So there's this animal skin covering that goes over this whole thing so that it's weatherproof, okay? He made 11 curtains The length of each curtain was 30 cubits. The breadth of each curtain, four cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves and made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost curtain on one set and 50 loops on the edge of the uh, connecting curtain. And he made 50 clasps of bronze to couple the tent together that it might be a single hole. And he made for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins. Okay, so here's the fabric And then the framing, verse 20. He made upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits were the length of a frame and a cubit and a half, each breadth of each frame. Each frame had two tenons for fitting together. He did this for all the frames of the tabernacle. The frames of the tabernacle he made thus. Twenty frames for the south side. And he made forty bases of silver under the twenty frames. Two bases under the frame for its two tenons. And two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. For the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, he made 20 frames and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. Now, just for the sake of pausing, recognize another reason why it's so specific in its repetition. This is a tent that needs to be assembled and disassembled and reassembled. And the inventory has to be kept track of and they need to know every time they build it, how many bases make up one side How long the north side and the east side. So it's incredibly detailed. Remember that this book is not merely a record, but also a manual for the Levitical priests. We'll see that extensively in the next book, Leviticus. Verse 27 For the rear of the tabernacle westward, he made six frames. He made two frames for the corners of the tabernacle in the rear, and they were separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. He made two of them this way for the two corners. There were eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases under every frame two bases. He made bars of acacia wood. These are the middle bars that run to keep the structure rigid for the five, uh, five for the frames on one side and five bars for the frames on the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the tabernacle at the rear westward. He made the middle bar to run from end to end halfway up the frames and he overlaid the frames with gold. He made the rings of gold for holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. Now, if you weren't with us, let me just point this out to you, that the internal metals, the ones that are hidden and in the holy place, this includes both the furniture and the little clasps and the stands, they're more precious than the ones that are exposed and visible on the outside. So if you came in and tried to spot the metal as you walked through the tabernacle, you would start with a court that was mostly just bronze, and then on the outside of this, this holy place and most holy place is bronze as well. And then as you step in, if you were to look closely, there'd be silver and gold. Okay, and so there's this upgrade of preciousness as you get closer to the ark. Uh, verse 35, he made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen with cherubim. Skillfully worked into it, he made it. And for it he made four pillars of acacia and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold and he cast for them four bases of silver. He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. And its five pillars with their hooks he overlaid the capitals and their fillets were of gold but their five bases were of bronze. So two curtains here, two fabric doorways. One incredibly intricate, hung with gold that separates the most holy place from the holy place. The most holy place, the high priest, was the only one who would ever enter there, only one day of the year, and with the sacrifice from the Day of Atonement. The holy place was administered by the priests, but only the priests were allowed in, and so there was also a covering, a front door to the tent, if you will, that's nice, but not as nice. And so once again, the deeper you get in, the more precious. Chapter 37. Bezelel made the Ark of Acacia Wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast four rings of gold for it, four feet, two rings on one side and two rings on the other. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles in the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark. And so basically we have a gold plated box with two rods to carry it and legs for it to stand on. And then it also has a lid, verse six, he made a mercy seat of pure gold Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold and he made them hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on one end and one on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces to one another towards the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. So this is the only piece of furniture, the ark, in the most holy place. It's the centerpiece of this entire tent temple, okay? And what do you have at the center? You have this lid of gold with two angels on it that are facing one another and their wings are extended and they're bowing and they're looking at the empty space between them, okay? Now, if you look at the visions of heaven in the book of Isaiah, like in chapter six, or in Ezekiel, or even in Revelation, it's pretty easy to see that what we're we're painting here is a picture of the throne room of God. And so they're looking at this place that represents the place where God is seated, his throne. But there's nothing there, right? And that's intentional. They're not allowed to make any graven image, any representation of God. And so the closest they get is a recreation of what his throne room looks like in the tabernacle. So that's the only furniture in the uh, most holy place. And then in the next room, the one where the priest can come, there's three pieces of furniture. That's what we read next. Verse 10. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold and he made a molding of gold around it. And he made a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, made a molding of gold around the rim. He cast four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners at its four legs, close to the frame where the rings as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table and overlaid them with gold. And he made vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates and its dishes for incense and its bowls and its flagons, which were to pour drink offering. Okay, this is the table of the presents, And so 12 loaves of bread baked every week would just be set there on the temple or uh, on the table. and Then we have the second piece of furniture in this room, which is a lampstand. He also made the lampstand of pure gold, verse 17. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. And so notice here, it's not overlaid wood, but solid gold and it's floral or tree-like in its design. Okay, it has ornamentation that is calyxes and flowers and fruits. Verse 18, there were six branches going out of its side, three on one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out the other side. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and a flower on one branch and three cups like an almond blossom, each with a calyx and a flower on the other. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself were four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece under each pair, the six branches going out of it their calyxes and their branches were of one piece with it and the whole was a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. And He made seven lamps and its tongs and trays of pure gold and he made all its utensils out of a talent of pure gold. Now a talent is about 75 pounds so this is a hefty tall lamp and you should picture a very large menorah with three branches on each side and a center stem, seven lamps in total. Okay? Now, as we talked about, the tabernacle constantly is pointing at the garden at the beginning of Genesis. And so this tree is kind of a stand-in for the tree of life, okay? And then there's one other thing in here, and that's an altar of incense. He made an altar, verse 25, of incense, of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its breadth was a cubit. It was square and two cubits was its height. Its horn were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And he made a molding of gold around it, and he made two rings of gold on its molding on two opposite sides of it as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He made the holy anointing oil also and the pure fragrant incense blended by the perfumer. And so this altar was for the burning of incense, and it was to be maintained constantly, daily, and so the tent would always be full with the smoke of incense. And so these are the three pieces of furniture. It's the ark in the center representing the throne room of God, and then we've got this lamp, the table of the presence with the twelve bread, and then we've got the altar of incense. And all of them are made of gold. Now we step out into the courtyard, and the courtyard has two pieces of furniture, but they're both made of not gold, but bronze. And so we see in chapter 38 he made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length, and five cubits its breadth. It was a square, and three cubits was its height. He made horns on its four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with bronze. And he made all the utensils of the altar the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, the fire pans. He made its utensils of bronze. And he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze under its ledge, extending halfway down. He cast four rings on the four corners of bronze grating as holders for the poles, and he made the poles of acacia wood, and he overlaid them with bronze, and he put the poles through the rings on the side of the altar to carry it with them. He made it hollow with boards. And so this altar is for the offerings. It's effectively a barbecue. That's why it says it has the grating, so that it has a place to put the wood in, and then up above it, it has a place to put the sacrifices. It's wrapped entirely in bronze, And it's one of two pieces of furniture in the court, okay? And so in the court, all of the Jewish uh, people could come with their sacrifices. Some of them the priests would offer in front of them and they would watch. Some of them they would actually participate in. But all of that happens right here. The other piece of the furniture is a bronze basin that's used for washing. Verse 8. He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And so here we have an added detail. The bronze for this is specifically made out of mirrors. Now, the way we make mirrors today, if I understand it rightly, is we take reflective material like silver. I think we've updated it now, but we take a very thin, shiny piece of metal and we lay it under a piece of glass. But in the ancient world, they would just take really high quality and heavily polished bronze, and that was the best they could do for mirrors. Now, I've never actually seen a piece that's high polished, but I I would recognize that it's probably a lot worse than what we associate with mirrors. But it says here that these were the mirrors specifically of the women who were ministering in the entrance of the tent of meeting. This is the only time this role is mentioned in the book of Exodus. And it doesn't really tell us much about it, does it? We know that the practice continues because in 1 Samuel chapter 2, these are the women that Eli, the priest's sons, are abusing sexually, okay? Which is not a great cross-reference, but there you go. Okay, the practice continues up to that point. So what were they doing ministering in the entrance of the tent of meeting? Most likely, they're taking care of, of all of the other non-priestly duties that go into the tabernacle, like cleaning the utensils um, and and especially taking care of the women. Now, the uh, Levitical law never says that the Levites are to keep their distance from women directly, but it wouldn't be surprising if there were um, women who were directly involved in the tabernacle. In fact, we have a parallel in the early church. In the early church, there weren't just pastors, there were also deacons. And the deacons were both male and female. And when we look at the job jobless of what deacons did, oftentimes they were the ones who carried the gospel into the women's quarters. Remember, in the first century world, women uh, were often kept away from the public. And so a pastor couldn't just walk in and walk into, you know, Uh, your wife's bedroom, but a deacon could. But what I want to point out about these women, whatever it was that they were doing, I want you to recognize that the tabernacle is more than just priests serving here. It's the offerings of all of the people of Israel that are participating in this. There's these women who have signed up, and it seems that there must be some correlation between the bronze mirrors and this role, right? Right? It doesn't say the bronze mirrors came from all sorts of people, just from these people. And so maybe here there is some sort of a recognition or a dedication. I don't want to say that these women are nuns, but there's something here, something that's lost on us as modern readers that Israel saw significance in this. But, but there's participation here. So we've got all of the furniture for the tabernacle now. The only thing left that still needs to be built is the outer court, which is, is tent-like, but has no roof. Okay, so this area is open. It just has a big wall of curtains around it. Verse nine, he made the court. For the south side, the hangings of the court were fine twine linen, a hundred cubits. Their 20 pillars and 20 bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were silver. And for the north side, they were hanging a hundred cubits, 20 pillars. Their 20 bases were of bronze but the hooks of the pillars and the fillets were of silver. In the west side, the hangings of 50 cubits were 10 pillars and 10 bases, and the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were what? Silver. And for the front of the east, 50 cubits. The hangings of one side of the gate were 15, and there were three pillars and three bases, and so for the other side. On both sides of the gate, the court were hanging 15 cubits with three pillars and three bases. All the hangings around the courts were of fine twine linen, and the bases for the pillars were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. The overlaying of the capitals was also silver, and the pillars of the court were filleted with silver." And the screen for the gate of the court was embroidered with needlework in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It was 20 cubits long and five cubits high in its breadth, corresponding to the hanging of the court. And their pillars were four in number, the four bases of bronze, their hooks of silver, and their overlaying of their capitals and their fillets of silver. And all the pegs of the tabernacle for the court all around were bronze. Okay. Now, one thing that I didn't mention, the measurement that's used throughout the measurement for distance or for length is a cubit. It's about a foot and a half. And so just just as a quick reference point, the gate then to the tabernacle is 30 feet wide, okay, this front entrance. You can, if you want, go back through and map out the rest. Um, If you're not tired of all these things and you want to know the deeper significance, then you can go back and listen to when we looked at chapters 25 on. Um, But notice verse 21. These are the records of the tabernacle. The tabernacle of the testimony as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithmar, the son of Aaron, the high priest. What's this saying here? It's saying, we're about to give you the records for the total gift given, as recorded, as commanded by Moses, by these priests. And so in 22... Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses and with him Aholiab, the son of Ashemach, the tribe of Dan, the engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the gold that was used for the work in the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels. How, how much weight did I say a talent was? 75 pounds, right? So when you add that to the shekels here, uh, we're talking about more than 2,000 pounds of gold, Okay, more than a ton. If, if you want to think of it this way, think of a gold bar like Fort Knox style. Think of a pile of 80 gold bars. That's what we're talking about. Okay, And so this is a swanky tent. right? Incredible amount of riches. Uh, if I did my math right and my prices for gold per ounce are up to date and I checked online today... So I don't know if I can trust the first website I came to. But if I did, we're talking about $1,250.30 per ounce. That puts us well in the $40 million category worth of gold alone in the tabernacle. Okay, So this is serious business. The offering that we're talking about, once again, is a profoundly large offering. And so it's recorded here for us. And then it says in verse 25, The silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was a hundred talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary, a becca head that's a half shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary, for everyone who was listed in the records from 20 years old and upward, for thousand five hundred and fifty men. As you may remember, the silver used in the tabernacle comes from a census offering of atonement of a half shekel per, per, per person. So it mentions that here, and it tells us that the total men over the age of 20 in Israel at this point is uh, 603,550 men. Verse 27, The hundred talents of silver were for casting the bases of the sanctuary, the bases of the veil, a hundred bases for a hundred talents and a talent of base. And of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made fillets for them. The bronze that was offered for the 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With that, he made bases for the entrance of the tent of meeting and the bronze altar and the bronze grating for it. And all the utensils of the altar, the bases around the court and the bases of the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs of the court. Now, I just want to hit this again. Here's how you're going to build it. Here's how they built it. Here's all the offering in its amounts that went into building and the objects are listed again. Do you hear the repetition here? The emphasis is somewhat profound, even if we find it boring. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now we move on to the garments of the priests. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now Aaron's name there is a stand-in for whoever was going to be the high priest Verse 2, he made the ephod of gold, blue, and purple scarlet yarns, fine twine linen, and they hammered out gold leaf and cut threads to work into the blue and purple and scarlet yarns and into fine twine linen in skilled design. And so not only was this a beautiful royal blue and purple garment, but it had gold thread woven into it just to give it even more beauty. Uh, verse four, they made the ephod attaching shoulder pieces and joined it at the two edges, and the skillfully woven band on it was one piece and made like it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, as the Lord had commanded and So what we see here is is an ephod, which is like a sleeveless vest, um, and it 's got these golden shoulder pads here that have precious stones uh, that represent the tribes of Israel. Uh, um, six here and six here. Verse six, they made onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree and engraved like the engravings of signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so every time the high priest walked into the holy place and once a year when he walked into the holiest place, he carried the names of Israel on his shoulders because he was ministering on their behalf. Okay, so he brought them, if you will, into the tabernacle. Uh, Verse eight, he made the breastplate in skilled work in the style of an ephod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, it was a square and they made the breastpiece double a span its length and a span its breadth when doubled. And so this is a square piece of fabric that hangs both attached to the shoulder pads and then attached down here at the waist and in it are the urim and the thummim that he uses to discern the will of God. And then on the front of it is 12 stones, one for each tribe of Israel, each of them a different precious stone. Verse 10, they set four rows of stones, a row of sardis, topaz, carbuncle was the first row. The second row was emerald, sapphire, and diamond. The third, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, beryl, onyx, and jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold filigree. There were 12 stones with the names of, according to the names of the sons of Israel, they were like signets each engraved with his names for the 12 tribes. And so he doesn't just carry it over his shoulders, but in front of his heart. And they made on the breastplate twisted chains like cords of pure gold. They made two settings of gold filigree and two rings, and he put the rings on the two edges of the breastplate, and they put the two cords of gold and the two rings at the edge of the breastplate, and they attached the two ends of the two cords as the two settings of filigree. Thus they attached it in the front of the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Then they made two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastplate on the, in, breastplate on the inside next to the ephod. They made two rings of gold and attached them in the front of the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod and its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. So don't picture here one of those things you put your passport in and hang around your neck. This is attached at top and bottom. It's not flapping. It's not tucked inside his shirt. Um, it's very visible and it's, it's um, always right in front of his heart. Um, verse 21 they bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with lace of blue so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod that the breastpiece should not come loose from the ephod as the lord had commanded moses he also made the robe of the ephod woven all of blue and the opening of the robe was like an opening in a garment with a binding around the opening so that it might not tear once again think poncho It's a single piece of fabric with a hole cut in the middle and then stitched so it won't tear that he pulls over his head and then the ephod goes on over that. Um, And then it says at verse 24, on the hem of the robe, they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering as the Lord had commanded Moses. They also made coats of woven fine linen for Aaron and his sons, and a turban of fine linen, and caps of fine linen, and linen undergarments of fine twine linen. I'm sure they appreciated that. And a sash of fine twine linen in blue and purple and scarlet yarns, embroidered with needlework as the Lord had commanded. There's one last piece over all of this uh, garment, and that is a plate that he wears over his turban. Verse 30, they made a plate of holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription, an engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. A recognition that Aaron is, uh, is working above his pay grade as a priest, right? He doesn't deserve to be there. He's not operating because of his own holiness, but only as God has labeled him holy is he operating. Uh, verse 31 they tied it to a cord of blue and fastened it on the turban above as the Lord had commanded Okay, so they're beautifully dressed uh, priests and their significance in everything they're wearing I just watched Raiders of the Lost Ark and actually in the last scene when they're opening the ark they do a pretty good job of trying to figure out what this would look like so if you're curious that's a good place to start plus who doesn't want to watch Raiders again Verse 32, thus all the work of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting was finished. Amen. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. They brought the tabernacle to Moses. Again, we're going to walk through all the pieces, this time in their presentation to Moses for inspection. Remember that Moses was the only one who actually knows how this all goes together, because he didn't just get the commands, he was shown the blueprints in some sense, okay? And so it says in verse 33 they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tanned ramskins and goatskins, the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and its mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamp with lamps all set, and utensils and oil for the light, the golden altar and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the entrance of the tent the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils and basins and stands, the hangings of the courts, its pillars, its bases, and the screens for the gate of the court and the cords and pegs and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, The, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for the services priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done the work. So they bring him to inspect them all. Everything's there. Everything's made according uh, to the command. It's all as it should be. And notice verse 43. Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. Now you'll see this phrase all over the Old Testament. And so and so blessed them. In fact, we saw it in the book of Genesis when Jacob blesses Moses pharaoh when he has this audience before pharaoh it's possible that what we see here is is close to what we read that's given to the high priest for his benediction over the people and this is in numbers chapter 6 verse 22 but uh let's see if i can do it from memory the lord bless you and keep you the lord cause his face to shine upon you uh what's the second half I remember and give you peace, but there's something before that. Yeah, the Lord lift up your countenance and give you peace. There we go. Great. Uh, What I want to explain, though, exactly what a benediction is, though. Hear those words? The Lord bless you and keep you. It's a word of blessing spoken over the people. And so traditionally, the high priest would offer the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, and then he would come out for the waiting audience, and he would speak this blessing over the people. Why? Because the sacrifice had been received. If you read the New Testament closely, or if you come to our service on Sunday morning, you'll notice that there are benedictions in the New Testament that we make use of to speak over the congregation after we've had a service. But what it is, is it's a proclaiming God's blessings over the people. Last chapter here, chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meaning. Now we've gotten a couple of timestamps here. What this one tells us, the first day of the first month is two things. First off, the tabernacle opens for business for what holiday? Passover. Okay, that's the, in the religious holidays of Israel. The first day of the first month is where their calendar begins. It's also where the festival of Passover begins. The second thing we learn here is that they have been out of Egypt for exactly one year. Okay? And so when we put this together with the other time stamps, it means that this process of building the tabernacle took at least six months, more likely eight or nine. Okay? We don't know how much time with the golden calf incident and this interim period with the tent of meeting, but we assume that that's about the breakdown. It may even be that the tabernacle is ready and in boxes and waiting, and they still have time until this day. But he wants it to open on the first day of the first month with Passover. Verse 3 You shall put in it the ark of testimony, and you shall screen the ark with a veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. So once again, we're walking through the furniture, and notice where it starts in the holy place. Set up the t- tent, then put in the ark, set up the veil, then put in the furniture in the holy place. Continues continues, um, verse 5, you shall put in the golden altar for incense before the ark of testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door and the tabernacle uh, of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You'll set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the, date, uh, for the gate of the court. Now, here's an interesting note that I want to make. Who is being given the instructions here? Moses. And if you look at the you shall, it's in the singular, the whole way. Now, it may just be that it's speaking to Moses for the whole of people of Israel because it said that Bezalel made all of the tabernacle, and we know that's not the case, right? When it says, and Bezael made these pieces, he made it with his team, okay? That's a normal way to talk about things. But it also may be that Moses is the only one qualified to handle the tabernacle before it's anointed, before the priests are anointed, which hasn't happened yet and won't happen until Leviticus chapter 8, before the sacrifices, right? It's not open for business, and so all of Israel is excluded, and Moses is quietly setting up the pieces. I don't know, but I wanted to point it out. Verse 9. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priests. You should bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve as priests and the anointing, uh, their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout all generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases, he set up its frames, he put its poles in, he raised up its pillars, he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony. This is the two tablets of stone. And he put them in the ark and he put poles on the ark and the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the veil, uh, brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark off, uh, ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. Do you hear how that repeated refrain is ramping up in its usage? The majority of those 26 times I mentioned between 35 and 40, the majority of them are found in these last 12 verses, okay? Like I said, this is a clear emphasis that the passage wants to get. It it wants to bore us To get the point. And I think that's intentional. Let's just wrap it up here. Verse uh, 24. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. So now we're ready to ask the question, why? It's a clear emphasis, but that doesn't tell us why. That it's important to the author doesn't explain why it's important to the author. What is it he wants to get by dragging us through this over and over again just so he can show that everything was according to the command? The Lord. One of the things we need to keep in mind is that the tabernacle is very specifically designed because of the distance between a holy God and a sinful people. And so even as you watch Moses set this up, he works from the inside out. So the Ark, as soon as it was finished and the lid would have put on it, they would have wrapped it in the veil of the Holy of Holies, and nobody in Israel except the high priest once a year is gonna see that thing again, okay? Well, and I guess more than once a year. Every time the tabernacle moves, somebody wraps it up. I'm gonna assume it's the high priest. But nonetheless, once it's in there, it's gone. For the rest of Israel's history, the Israel common person is not going to see that, okay? And so he does that, and then he steps out, and he does the next, and then he steps out, and he puts the furniture in the courtyard, and then he builds it around it, and he dresses the priests, and he consecrates them, Right? He's kind of of painting his way out of it, right? So so that there's nothing defiling let in, so that it's consecrated on its way out until it's fully consecrated. And then anyone who goes in from that point has to be consecrated to go in. The other reason why this obedience is stressed is because Israel needs to know that this symbolic happening that's gonna happen over and over again as these priests operate as mediators between God and man, they need to know that it's sufficient, right? The, basically, the only place they understand the tabernacle works is when something goes wrong and somebody dies, right? But here is this constant reminder that, that this is founded on, it's based upon obedience, Now, this is a stretch, but it's a worthy point to make. In the same way that the tabernacle is designed by God and the place where God carries out our salvation, we are saved in the obedience of Jesus Christ as new covenant Christians. That's the foundation. And when we read the gospels and we see not just Jesus' death on the cross, but also a righteous life lived, it's reiterating the same thing. Lo, the author of Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament and applies to Jesus. In the volume of the book, it is written to me to do Your will, O Lord. And so we can read the Gospels and we see Jesus, the righteous. We see Jesus' obedience. And when it says that God has made us righteous in Jesus Christ, what righteousness is that? The one we find in the pages of the Gospels. Okay, and to this day, as a Christian your salvation stands on the obedience of Jesus Christ, not on yours. In the same way that I talked about earlier that worship is a response, the Christian life is an act of worship. It's a response to the fact that you've already been made righteous in Jesus Christ. The foundation is one of perfectly kept obedience. There is one greater than Moses who walked into not just the pattern of the tabernacle, but the one that it represents in heaven, not bearing the offerings of animals that could never cover sins, but his own blood and atoned for us. And we stand in that foundation. Therefore, we boldly enter into the throne room of grace. Now, I want you to notice what happens here. So, it's set up. It's consecrated. They're ready to go. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, I want you to remember that was the goal. We've seen this ambivalent relationship with Israel and the cloud. It's the cloud that leads them through the wilderness. It's the cloud that defends them from the Egyptian. It's the cloud that descends on the mountain. It's the cloud from which God speaks. It's how they know that God is present and leading them. But the cloud has also been keeping its distance and what did God promise after the, um, after the golden calf incident? I'll still lead you, but I can't be in your midst. And here, the cloud descends on the tabernacle in the center of the camp of Israel and remains on the tabernacle. Okay? By the way, this pattern is repeated. Later on, the tabernacle is moved into Israel and eventually God, uh, God gives David permission to prepare so that his son Solomon can build him a physical temple and so Solomon consecrates the temple after building it all it's much bigger and much more beautiful he takes everything in these instructions and he expands upon it deeply and he dedicates the temple and when that happens as they offer their first sacrifices once again it says the glory of the Lord filled the temple in the smoke but that temple gets destroyed. It gets ransacked by Babylon as they take all of Jerusalem captive and move them out of Israel. And so when they return in the, days of, um, in the days of Cyrus, in the days of Artaxerxes, under Nehemiah and Ezra, they rebuild the city of Jerusalem and they also build a new temple. You can read about this in the book of Ezra. And they go through the motions again and they dedicate the temple and what happens? Nothing. We don't have time tonight, but read it for yourself in Ezekiel 6, 16 through 18. It just says, and they dedicated the temple and then they celebrated the Passover. I think it's with that in mind that John's gospel picks up in John chapter 1 and this is what he says. Speaking of Jesus... The pre-incarnate word who becomes incarnate, verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word there he uses for dwelt is unique. It's the same one the Septuagint uses for tabernacle. It'd be totally appropriate to say what he says here is, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Listen to what he says. And we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Do you see how he connects those two ideas again? Tabernacle and glory. The cloud of God's glory filling the tabernacle. In fact, look at chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Interesting. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple. and and the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables and he told those who sold the pigeons take these things away do not make my father's house a house of trade his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me that's in the Psalms now listen to this verse 18 so the Jews said to him what sign do you show us for doing these things and Jesus answered them destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up and the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Do you see what John does there? He connects the dots for us. He takes this event, and he says, It was pointing to Jesus, and it was fulfilled in Jesus. And there's this profound moment where the temple built under Ezra that Herod comes along and ramps up like crazy. That's the 46 years that that the Jews are referring to here. So the temple of Herod, he walks into it, he drives all of the craziness out of it, and then he points to himself and he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And so he takes all of this glory and he brings it right to the center in the resurrection. Now, verse 35, back in the book of Exodus. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. Okay, so how did they know when to break camp? They would see the cloud descend from the tabernacle. They would pack it up and they would follow the cloud and then they would set up again. Verse 38, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire was in it by night in the sight of all the household of Israel throughout all their journeys. So I want you to notice that the book here ends on an apparent high note. God is really dwelling with the people and continues to throughout all their journeys, it says, but there's something we have to notice here. Look again at verse 35. So the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and what? And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. Okay. Now, we see the same thing in, in Solomon's temple. The glory, the smoke fills it to the degree that the priest can't even continue offering sacrifices. They just have to give a distance. But when he says here that Moses was not able to enter, he doesn't say the priest, he says Moses. Why is that significant? Because Moses is the one we think of having access Right? It's almost like God moves in next door, but he's not taking visitors. That's what it reads like, right? Here's what you have to remember. You have to remember that although Exodus ends here, the story does not. Leviticus chapter 1 picks up on this tension and resolves it with the sacrifices. Okay, Yes, God dwells with the people, but the people can't even enter the tabernacle without sacrifices of blood. In fact, turn over one page and look at Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when anyone brings an offering to the Lord. And he starts to lay out how the sacrifices work. Do you hear the distance there? It's so close and yet so far away. So to understand how this all works... We can't just look at the tabernacle. In one sense, it's just a tent. It's a tent with a purpose. And without that purpose, it's just a tent. Even with God so close, there's no access into relationship with God with the story so far. Yes, there's a priesthood. Yes, there's a portable temple. Yes, there's the Ark of the Covenant. But without blood, there's no remission of sins. And you still have the tremendous distance of people and Leviticus is going to actually uh show the depth of that problem alongside the solution you think it's just blood sacrifices it's not ladies let's talk about your periods men's let's talk about your sem- you know your your seminal emissions Let's talk about what happens when you get sick or when you get leprosy. Let's talk about, uh, you know, almost every issue is going to become an issue. Why? Because God is their next-door neighbor, and that changes things, okay? If you've ever read Leviticus and been confused on why these things matter, that's why, okay? It's something different that we're talking about here. Now, if that's still confusing to you, and I hope it is, because if that's all you need to clarify, then what am I up here for? Um... In two weeks, come back and we'll pick up right, right where we left off in Leviticus. Next week, we will have a worship night. We'll celebrate just the truths of who God is, that he desires to be made known, that he enters into human life to make himself known. Um, and we'll just have a time of worship. Michelle and some friends are going to come back. We'll do some readings from the book of Exodus and have some times of prayer. It will be great. So I hope you can join us. Let's pray. God, I am thoroughly convinced that we haven't plumbed the depths of the book of Exodus and even this repetitious part that felt like too much to even reread. Your word says that you're above us like the heavens are above the earth and that your ways are not like our ways. But we understand that this tabernacle and this priesthood and these sacrifices and the holiness code and the kosher laws, that all of these things are shadows, they're tutors, they're instructions that uh, point forward to what you've done in Jesus. And so I pray even now that we understand these things better, which we rejoice in, Lord, I pray that we would continue to deepen our understanding of these things because they show us Jesus. And they uh, extrapolate and, uh, and exegete what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that we would see why Moses is so excited to emphasize these things. We thank you for the progress we've made. And we ask that it would continue all the way through the book to Revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're curious, that's two of 66 books. And it's 90 chapters of, well, we still have uh, 1,099 left. So there we go. Have a good night.